Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our series about families and mental illness. I'm going to be interviewing Professor Rosemary Radford Ruther about the story of her son, David, who has schizophrenia. Professor Rosemary Radford Ruther has been an academic all her life. She is a feminist theologian who has written 47 books. That's right, 47 books, mostly about movements in religious history. At 75 years old, she is still teaching at Claremont School of Theology because this is what she loves to do. I'm interviewing her tonight because of her book, Many Forms of Madness, A Family Struggle with Mental Illness and the Mental Health System. And this is a book that she has written about her son, David, and also partly with her son, David, and includes many of his poems. Welcome to Safe Space, Rosemary. Yeah, thank you very much. I want to hear first about your son. Tell me a little bit about David, about who he is, and especially maybe who he was before he was diagnosed. Let me just say first about how he looks. David is tall, six foot four, uh, nice looking. Uh, he looks younger than his 52 years. I mean, he looks more like he's 35 or something. Uh, basically, uh, he's a, a kid that always seemed a little bit troubled, even as a youngster, sometimes falling into fights, even in uh, grade school on the uh, playground, <laughs> but with a kind of whimsical style a certain kind of wry sense of humor and a kind of latent intelligence that didn't seem to somehow know how to be developed. So those are just a few thoughts. Thank you for it. I think describing him is so great. It helps me picture him. There are wonderful pictures of him in the book where he, he's really actually very beautiful, I would say. And I know your your book includes many of his poems. And I wondered if you might uh, start by reading one of them in particular. I wondered if you might read us the poem, The Desert, which he wrote, I understand, when he was 15, kind of just beginning to show some of sort of early signs that maybe he was struggling in a particular way, although obviously it wasn't clear yet what that was. Well, this uh, this poem was written after we had a long um, ride in the car driving from Mexico, and so it, it sort of, ref- and he was kind of lying in the back of the car. It sort of reflects his experience. Great. Uh, so it goes like this. Is the weather so hot? I cannot feel. Think. The mind floats. Concentration and comprehension are gone. I lie in the back seat in oblivious state. Will it never end? This cooped upness? I want to be active, not a vegetable to be cooked by the elements in a square tin box. Death is outside, the window, the graves created by a harsh environment, waiting for another victim, waiting for yet another being to be rendered useless, another bone to bleach, more metal to rust. This is God's wasteland. Though it is graced by beauty and wonder, by unparalleled spectacles of vision, 
It is nevertheless forsaken, the devil's playground, which God has set aside for his alter ego and for those who are strong enough in spirit to rend the veil of civilized illusion and gaze naked into her stark reality. So So that's a a very early poem of David. It's amazing to think of a 15-year-old in some ways writing that. You know, I find myself, of course, it's with, in hindsight, knowing what went on later, it's hard not to see it in some ways as a kind of foreshadowing. His, he's really very courageous and very brave. He's talking about, um, for those who are strong enough in spirit to rend the veil of civilized illusion and gaze naked into her stark reality. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary in a way. It is. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, for people who struggle with psychosis, if there's that feeling of, of gazing naked into a, another stark reality, I mean, to, or maybe that the experience of doing that is so shattering that it feels like it take transports you to another reality. I I don't know. Do you read it that way? I don't know exactly how to read it. I mean, it, it has some kind of insights. I mean, he talks about the alter ego of God, which is kind of I don't know what he means by that. Maybe that's a devil. It's the alter ego of God. Uh, and that there's this very basic kind of conflict in reality between good and evil. Uh, and this uh, this sort of desert-like land that we were driving through is, is the devil's playground. It's very poignant because he describes it, although it is graced by beauty and wonder, it is nonetheless forsaken. Uh, it's very, very poignant. So tell me a little bit about what what went on after that. So I gather he was, as you put it, he was always a little bit troubled. But you as a mom, um, you know, is there mental illness in, the, in your family among your no, other relatives? Not that I know of. No, exactly. So you're not look, on the lookout for this. You're a regular mom with a regular boy. And when did you start really starting to wonder something's not right. You describe your, his younger sister as noticing that a few years later. I'd love to hear your own kind of observations and feelings about how how it began to first emerge that something wasn't quite right. Um, well, David um, was skipped ahead twice as a, uh, in primary school, which I think was probably not a good idea. So he graduated... Uh, from a Jesuit high school at 16. The Jesuits were eager to say that, uh, you know, this is a talented, but he's not working up to capacity, you know. He has certain kinds of conflicts and so on. So, you know, they were giving me this kind of message. And, of course, my way of thinking about that at the time, like a lot of parents, is is that he's still... He's still young. He's he's been pushed ahead too fast. He needs time. So all the all this will sort of work itself out as he gets a little bit older. And it was on that basis that we thought that instead of pushing him on to college at sixteen, that he should take another year and and have time to sort of mature a bit. And so we we sent him off to England to. Uh, you know, the university there, he had a cousin who was going there, and, and we had some friends that had sent their daughters there. So it seemed like a kind of ideal way for him to have another experience. 
and to grow up a bit. Well, probably that was a bad idea, and there's there's uh, no question that that he got in with some folks there that were doing psychedelic drugs, that he had some crisis experiences, and uh, and perhaps, I don't really know, that those experiences helped sort of precipitate a kind of latent mental illness. Now, when he came home, I mean, he he was basically... Kind of the faculty there said that he, you know, he wasn't able to concentrate. He wasn't able to go to classes, so he really should come home. So we brought him home about February from England, and uh, that's when my my youngest daughter, who was quite young at the time, had the, had the sense that he, that something had happened to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't saying we didn't really have. I mean, we weren't thinking in those terms. So anyway, that's part of the stages of things, and then we began to go to psychiatric groups in the hospital, you know, and so he, he sort of gradually became defined as uh, as mentally ill in this process. And, and schizophrenia, as we know, you know, has many different expressions. It, it looks and feels different in so many different people. Maybe you could just give us a quick snapshot of how, now that he's a, a full-grown adult, how does schizophrenia manifest itself in your son, David? Well, the, the most obvious experience that he has, which is identified as schizophrenic, is that he constantly hears voices, and multiple voices, male and female voices. And they tell him all kinds of things. Now, some of the psychiatric places he's been had become very alarmed at the idea of voices because they assume that hearing voices means hearing voices that are telling you either to kill yourself or to hurt somebody else. As far as I know, that has not played a particular role in his voices. His voices tell him all kinds of things. Sometimes they just seem to be kind of interesting, what he conceives of as interesting information, Mm -hmm. like some Mexican poet, the the children of some Mexican poet are living in his neighborhood. Now, they're not living in his neighborhood, but his his voice, voices are telling him things like that. But the point is, he does hear a lot of voices, and in certain sense, because he's lonely, he doesn't really have much companions. He entertains those voices as a way to pass the time. <laughs> I, I, you know, I actually have talked to, to people with schizophrenia who have so-called lost their voices after taking maybe clozaril or an antipsychotic medicine, and they report tremendous loss and feeling lonely. That yeah. really, there's this kind of he inner companion. He lost his voices, and and no amount of medication seems to have the slightest effect on the voices whatsoever. Yeah, so so let's talk about that now, because I know that your sense, and I understand his sense too, is that he's taken medications mostly ever since he was first diagnosed, and that really the jury is very much out about whether they've helped him really at all, is the sense I get. And I'd love to hear you talk to me a little bit about what your experience of yeah. medication well, medication is treated by, I would say, the mental illness establishment of uh, psychiatrists, hospitals, boarding care places, and so on, is a kind of a mandatory dogma that you have to take that and take it for the rest of your life, uh, that you're now sort of trapped in this situation. And the only way not to regress is to take medication. And if you have any problems, you just take more of it. And you add more variety to it. And so you get you pile on medication. On the other hand, there's a kind of minority group, which is almost entirely, as I can figure out, ignored. 
by this establishment that really has serious questions that this this is debilitating possibly or physically and mentally it is actually causing brain damage and so on so there's a lot of these kind of questions and i would say that my experience is very conflicted there seems to be i mean you have the sense that that somehow some is necessary but there's too much being piled on mm. uh and there's and most of all there's nobody nobody in the system that seems to be willing to talk about it in a way that makes any sense so it sounds like you have found that you've not been able to find a psychiatrist who's willing to suspend dogma and really hear you and question it with you. But it sounds right. like you've just kind of gotten this very dogmatic party line that that's what you have to do. Right. Yes, and there's so many forces that feed that, of course. You know, I know that psychiatrists have been sued if they don't tell patients they have to be on medication for the rest of their life. If the patient goes off the medicine and then commits some terrible crime... There have been cases where psychiatrists have actually been sued for that. So there's this terrible culture in which it becomes almost unsafe to really raise these questions. And everybody loses in a setting like that. Yeah, and, and I actually suspect there's a, there's a monetary aspect that the pharmaceutical industries are committed to this because they're making the money on it. Well, and of course, the pharmaceutical industry sponsors most psychiatric journals, most psychiatric conferences. I mean, so there's a way that even the academic study of psychiatry has been so influenced by uh, the psychopharm companies, which is very unfortunate. So it's a very disturbing situation for for parents, for family members of mentally ill uh, members. I have have a a daughter. She's um, older than David by a year and a half, two years. And she's become very involved in going to see him and taking him out and so on. And and she's very conflicted also about the medication. And she really is, is much more insistent that it ought to be reduced, if possible, even eliminated, but certainly reduced. Uh, she just sent me a whole bunch of contact places uh, on detoxification uh, around Pasadena and L.A., and so I'm about to take a look at all that. <laughs> I'm just saying that I'm also in contact with this other part of the family who's also thinking about all this, but is, is uh, really alarmed at this medication. Yes. You described that, you know, I, your story was partly so moving to me because it's so clear that you've tried again and again and again to help David find a a residential setting that was really helpful to him. You described sending him to an island off the coast of Maine, Duck Island, to a kind of therapeutic community there, and then Gould Farm and Thresholds, all these different kind of communal uh, alternative approaches to mental health treatment that are more holistic. And time and again, it ends up, he ends up having to move on. And partly, it seems, because of a difficulty with meeting their work requirements. And and one of the things I heard you question was how much psychotropic medications may actually be interfering with his motivation, with his ability to want to get up and participate. And I wondered if you'd say a little bit about that. Yeah, I think one of the things that's particularly discouraging is, is a kind of passivity, which seems to have been a part of his reality, I would say, since he... Uh, you know, early 20s when he got into the situation. That passivity means that 
that he takes very little responsibility for his uh, daily needs. And most of all, there's there's sort of no real... I mean, I'm not sure that he even thinks that he's mentally ill, but he thinks he's in a system that's sort of controlling him. And he just passively uh, glides along in it uh, and and makes uh, the best of... Uh, of its minimal benefits like food, <laughs> right? Um, and and there's no sense that he's coming to grips with uh, def- thinking about what he might do to better his own life. And so, you know, the whole way in which this the psychiatric system now talks about recovery is really in terms of people taking responsibility uh, for beginning to shape their own lives. Right. Uh, and to even make small improvements on a day-to-day basis. And that's something that David just doesn't do and, and even sort of resists when you try to talk to him about it. I can imagine for you as a mom, you know, as a parent, that's particularly difficult because, of course, we all try to help our children become more and more independent and more and more capable of shaping their own lives. And one of the things you write about is is the decision that you made quite painfully, to decide that he could not live with you anymore. I wondered if you could speak about that, that despite the fact that he is so dependent and passive, that ultimately it was clear that you could not be the one to have him in your home. Well, basically, if David lives with us, and and my my daughter is also experiencing this because she has a sense that he would like to, his agenda is actually to come and live with her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh it's impossible to have a life if he was living with us and of course we we came to this really after five or six years of his early mental illness when he was living at home so maybe give me a feel for that what made it impossible to have a life well for one thing at one point he went uh into a rage we were actually away at the time and my youngest daughter was there and he trashed the basement and we had the sense that that at any point he might break out and do something break down the door it was just he just created a presence where you felt sort of on the alert to help him 24 7 and you had no life of your own yeah what became evident and and of course i had younger children uh, my youngest daughter there and and uh, he was certainly making her life very difficult so i I had a sense that he had to, we had to have some space. Uh, he needed to live someplace else, and we would, be, we would make clear we were committed to go to see him, to take him out, to do things with him. But we, he couldn't be on top of us 24-7. I think that was part of what moved me so much was that you describe making a very clear and permanent commitment to him and that he still, I understand, visits your home several times a week but that he can't stay there. So it's not like you've sort of abandoned him and left him somewhere else. You're very engaged with him, but there's really a limit to it. Right. And, you know, I think in some ways that's sort of in microcosm, the universal mothering challenge is, you know, how to be very connected and engaged, but also, you know, really to have self-care and limits. And in your case, it was perhaps especially challenging. Right. we have we don't have much time left. I want to ask you one more thing because you in your book you have a very powerful uh, critique of the mental health system and you use the word you know that basically the entire system is essentially geared around warehousing and I'd love to hear I'd love to for us to end 
with me just asking what do you mean by warehousing how do you see that and and how would you like to see that changed well i mean we've had a fair range of experience now we we, we experience a lot of different places in illinois we've experienced a whole range of facilities in hawaii and we've experienced them now all across the los angeles area so i mean i'm not just drawing on like one or two cases <laughs> But a lot of a lot of different boarding cares and hospitals, a lot of different hospitals as well as boarding cares, and and the the overwhelming attitude you get. First of all, uh, these facilities have almost no therapy whatsoever, and they they have almost nothing built in to actually talk to any of these mentally ill people at all. There's no talk. They they don't have any conversation with them. If the doctor comes, the doctor sees them, the psychiatrist, they look in on them, get some report on how they're doing, so to speak, in a kind of uh, three and a half minutes in order to either up or maintain or lower the medication. That's their job. And there's there's simply no built-in psychotherapy or conversation. The overwhelming purpose of all this seems to be to just get the people to be quiet, uh, even if they just lie there and sleep all the time. That's fine with them. But just lie there or hang around watching television, be kind of pacified so they can just be maintained. Now, that's what I call warehousing. And in some ways, you're saying that you see that even in your own son, that that's been cultivated. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's sort of built into these systems, and it's, it's very easy to just adapt to that yourself. Right, and so tell me, how would you like to see it instead? What would be some of the elements of a, of a very different vision of what mental health care could look like? Well, I mean, we've seen some alternatives, like Google Farm and so on, where they have uh, a whole kind of program, you know, regular time schedule, you get up, you help with the breakfast, you have some area of work, and in their case, a lot of that is farming, so you participate for three hours in farming, and then you have lunch, and then you have discussion. In other words, they have a whole structure, which is getting people organized, involved in creative activity. Uh, when I talk about work, I'm not just, you know, sort of work rather than play. I'm not making that distinction. I'm really saying that you have some kind of organized creative activity, so you're not just lying around being totally pacified. Uh, and that, to me, is the basis for really beginning to become some kind of person that's beginning to take responsibility for themselves. And what do you think, why is that not happening? I mean, if that would be, it seems like everybody would agree that would be so much better than this kind of warehousing you're describing. Well, it it doesn't happen because it takes much more staff to do that. It takes much better trained staff because a lot of the people that maintain these warehousing places are are really minimally paid and and not particularly trained. So what I'm hearing Uh, you say is that sort of for reasons of cost containment at some level? I think it's, I think it's partly cost, and that, that this is a low-pay area, the whole thing, yeah. is to uh, maintain these people at the sort of low level of pay. So I think there are these places that, that have a better program, but they cost a lot, 40000 a month. Yes, we haven't even talked about the financial aspect of being a family member with someone with major mental illness, but of course it's a huge cost. Rosemary, we are going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest, for your 
powerful book about your ex- family's experience. I so appreciate it. Well, these are great conversations, but they go very fast. <laughs> I know. It's so true. There's so much more we could say. Thank you, Rosemary. I want to direct people to Professor Rosemary Radford Ruther's book. It's Many Forms of Madness, A Family's Struggle with Mental Illness and the Mental Health System. I also wanted to just offer, if anyone is listening and is concerned about a family member themselves or someone they care about, there is a hotline here, uh, which is 1-888-568-1112. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon. If you would like to go to the website to listen to this show or send a link to a friend, please go to www.safespaceradio.com. You can download all 150 shows there and listen to them on your morning commute. You can also email subscribe to get a weekly announcement of that week's show. You can download us from iTunes, and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog. <laughs> 